Um, so, some quick house cleaning or housekeeping events, rather. Next week is the ninth. Is that right? Yeah. So the night, I'm in Georgia. My parents are moving and I'm going down to help them move. My friend Chris Thayer is gonna be here. Uh, some of you know Chris, he's a pastor, the director of discipleship at my church and he's filled in for me here before as well. He's gonna be here next week and I don't know what he's speaking on. So we'll have to come and find out. It'll be a surprise. But Chris is a really good guy and those of you that know him can attest to that. And then I'll be back the week after that. And then there'll be one more week in July where I'm going, and I'm not sure who's gonna fill in that week. But again, if, I, if, forever, if for some reason somebody's supposed to fill in and they don't show up, the food's here, eat, hang out, be Christians with each other. <clears throat> oh, the other thing too is I just got, uh, I, I hadn't brought for a while, but I, the materials that I do, Bible study materials, if you like what happens here, and you want to do it like in your small group or your church, Sunday school, something like that. I've got some DVD studies that I've produced. And I also just restocked on, I have an audio course if you want something to listen to in your car. Uh, ten weeks, ten sessions. It's called Apocalypse Now, what the Bible really teaches about the end times. A lot of confusion out there about end time stuff and uh, reading and watching the news. People are always asking questions. So I made a course that goes from the whole history of what Christians have always taught about the end times, looks at different perspectives, tries to be pretty neutral in terms of where people land, and then goes through all of the Bible material, including your own personal end times, what happens when you die. Things like heaven, hell, the intermediate state, do you sleep, do you get to be with the Lord, you know, Sheol, the grave, what's going on with all that. So all that's audio only. So if you like listening to stuff in your car, make your commute go a little easier, uh, you can grab one of those as well. Okay, enough plugs. Let's get into the meat of today. Exodus 15. <clears throat> what happened in Exodus 14? That's not a trick question. It's right there on your paper. If you have your Bible. What happened in Exodus 14? Yeah, yeah. The Exodus. Yeah, Exodus 14. Put that one in your mind as, a, as an important chapter in the Bible. Because it's when the Red Sea parted and Israelites walked through. Uh, the sea closed in over Pharaoh and his chariots. They were all drowned. And now Exodus 15 is looking back on that event. And it's probably the earliest part of the book of Exodus. Uh, of all the parts of Exodus, what we have in chapter 15 is probably the oldest. In other words, it goes back right to the event itself, whereas the rest of Exodus is likely written and compiled toward the ends of Mo end of Moses' life and some of it possibly afterwards. But Exodus 15, this, this amazing event just happened right at the end of 14 when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, and that phrase is the, the hand of the Lord against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. So there's deliverance. First thing after deliverance, they sing of salvation. Worship comes right after this miraculous event. It's human nature to, to worship or to exalt or to cheer. Or, you know, when the Panthers score a touchdown, what does everybody do? They stand up and cheer. They go crazy, right? If you like football. Uh, pick, your, pick a sport or pick something else that you cheer for. But it's that idea. When something amazing happens, you don't just sit there and go, hmm, that was pretty cool. There's this, wow, this entire greatest force in the world just got destroyed before our eyes. Uh, and we were miraculously saved. That's something to sing about. 
So, Moses and the Israelites were like, sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's hurled into the sea. That's the title of this song, by the way. In the Bible, songs were usually the title was the first line or first couple of lines. That's how all the psalms were identified. Like when Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just randomly saying that. That is the title of Psalm 22. So it would be like him yelling out, Psalm 22. Uh, so it's kind of like this. We'll see that this is the title of this song because Miriam will repeat it later. Uh, verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That word, salvation, that's the word Yeshua. That's the word for Jesus. That's the word for salvation. So remember, we said last week, the Exodus is intimately tied in with Israel's concept of salvation. So it should also color our concepts of salvation when we look at the New Testament. It should be cast in the paradigm of the Exodus event, except for instead of Pharaoh who's pursuing to take us back into literal slavery, it's Satan himself who's pursuing to take us back into spiritual slavery. These motifs are woven all the way through the New Testament. Uh, he is my God, I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That phrase, the Lord is a warrior. Warrior is literally ish, hamokamab. Uh, the Lord is a man of war, um, a mighty uh, a fighter. And, you know, we don't always think of God as a fighter or a warrior. You know, we think of Jesus as the face of God, and Jesus wasn't a warrior. But in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, especially if you read Revelation, um, there will come a time when Jesus himself is described as a warrior riding on a horse, uh, coming into battle, the conquering king. But it's at a cosmic level. It's not at a local level of fighting, you know, local armies or local powers. And so this, this idea of, of Yahweh being a warrior is really important because Israel has just come out of slavery. They don't know war. They don't know warfare. They don't know armies. They don't know power. They don't know how to fight. They don't know any of this. So for them to survive in the ancient Near East, which is a warring culture, they would need a warrior to lead them. They would need someone to fight on their behalf. And that's how the Old Testament paints, and especially in the, in the Torah, all of Israel's victories are God's victories. He enables them to have victory over these much, much mightier foes that they're going to face between now and when they get into the land. And, it, and it's always the case. He's, he, is, he is the warrior. They simply follow and obey, and he assures the uh, results of the victory. So then verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like stone. The deep waters, that phrase, deep waters, you might want to um, note it because that in, in Hebrew, it's tehomot. It's the, the phrase tehom, the deep, the abyss. It's the word that's related to the word that the other cultures in surrounding Israel use to characterize primordial cosmic evil. The Babylonians, use the word similar to a Tiamat, similar to the Hebrew word Tehomoth, and it means uh, Tiamat was the chaos serpent, the dragon who was symbolic of all the cosmic evil. And in Babylonian mythology, remember Babylon is where Abraham came from, way, way back. In Babylonian mythology, Marduk, their chief god, Marduk, who was a warrior, had to slay the chaos serpent, Tiamat, who was the embodiment of the deep, of the abyss, of the waters, and split her body in half 
and half of it became the sky, and half of it became the earth, and that's the Babylonian creation account. Similarly, the Canaanites, where Israel's going to go, they have their own creation account and their own gods, where their high god, Baal, the storm god, had to slay Yam, the sea serpent. And Yam is just the Hebrew word for sea, or waters, ocean. So there's all of this, we miss this in English, and we miss it in modern, because we don't have these myths in our cultures, but in the surrounding cultures of Israel, it was taken for granted that creation had to happen through a God subduing the forces of chaos, subduing and defeating and conquering chaotic evil. And it was almost always symbolized by the sea, by the deep, by the abyss. Well, the Hebrew Bible picks up on this notion of all these ancient mythologies because it was given into that culture. And it uses those resonances of cosmic evil and the God of, of the people overthrowing this cosmic evil. And it takes it and it turns it on its head. And I talk a lot about this in my uh, Bible and Science DVD. We spend a whole section on it because it's everywhere throughout Genesis 1. That, that God in Israel doesn't win by fighting a battle against chaos. God is the one who created from the abyss, from the deep, from the tehom. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness, over the waters. God just speaks, and even chaos obeys. That's the symbol that you get. That's the idea that you get in the Hebrew Bible, which is vastly different from Egypt's gods, Babylon's gods, Canaanite gods, uh, Hittite gods, Sumerian gods, all of them. It was totally unknown. So now in this text, what you see is that it's, it's basically God is speaking, and he's using the chaos, the deep, the sea, the symbol of all primordial evil, to drown or to crush Pharaoh and his arm. And Pharaoh, later in the prophets, if you want to write it down, you can. We won't have time to go there. But if you look at Ezekiel 29 and 32, Pharaoh is actually called, he's described by God as that chaos serpent or that, that, that monster dwelling in his waters, dwelling in the reeds. And, and God is said to have crushed him. It's the, you see it in Ezekiel 29. You see it in Job, Job 26, Psalm 74, Psalm 89, Isaiah 51. All of those passages talk about God crushing the head of the chaos monster who was embodied not by the deep, but by Pharaoh and all of his institutional empire power that would come against God's people. So the Bible takes this ancient creation ideas, these ancient creation motifs, turns them on its head and says, actually, there's irony because what most cultures see as the gods that they have to fear and pray to their gods to overcome is just one other element of creation that God used to overcome the real chaos serpent, the real ancient primordial monster, which is the enslaving power of Pharaoh, the power of empire, because later that will be transferred to describe Babylon, it will be used to describe Rome, it will be used to describe the enemies of God's people throughout time that subjugate, that oppress, that destroy the environment, that destroy people, that, that exploit humanity, that trade in slaves, that do all these things that are anti-creation, all these things that are against what God intended for his creation. Those are the things that the biblical authors see as the real forces of chaos, not some primordial monster, not some creature out in the ocean somewhere that's feared, but the actual forces tangibly that are oppressing and destroying God's people. So the biblical authors, the prophets, all the way through to Revelation, they will use this motif and they will use this imagery to describe God's 
victory over worldly powers that are oppressing his people, and they'll blow it up to cosmic scale so that the readers and the people that are listening will understand this is bigger than just God freeing some Hebrew people from Egypt. This is a paradigm for how God sees evil itself, how God sees empire itself, how God sees these forces that threaten creation. And so it's also interesting in Genesis, God divides the waters. When you look at the creation week, he divides the waters, he separates waters above, waters below, and that's the day that he creates the sky and the seas. He, he, the dividing of the waters is God's instrument for creation in Genesis chapter 1. In Exodus, the dividing of the waters is God's means of salvation for the people that he has created, his dividing of the Red Sea. And then his undoing of that dividing, letting the waters come back, is his means of judgment on Pharaoh. So there, there are all of the, this, is, this song is not just poetically describing what happened in Exodus 14. It is describing that, but it's describing it and it's infusing it with language that reaches all the way back to Genesis 1 and language that we'll see in a second looks all the way ahead to the future ultimate fulfillment of this, this cosmic battle of God versus evil and versus chaos. And again, the Apocalypse Now uh, audio CDs, we spend a whole week just looking at those prophetic passages that speak of this. So he goes on, the deep waters were covered, then they sank to the depths like a stone. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemies. The right hand was the symbol of power and might and authority and strength because most people in the ancient world, just like today, were right-handed. So if you're a lefty, uh, this just says you're weak. Um, <laughs> no, to totally kidding. Totally kidding. There will be left-handers in the Bible who do great things. See them when we get the judges. Uh, in the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger and consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed or solidified in the heart of the sea. So now here it's this poetic, by the blast of your nostrils, and it uses that term for the, that's, that's the, the word for breath. Well, that word breath is ruach, and it's also the word for wind. And that's what we saw in the last chapter, cause the division. God sent a strong wind, and it blew back the water. So here, that wordplay is being picked up. In English, wind and breath, or wind and blast of nostrils, those are two different words. But in Hebrew, it's one word. It's your ruach, your spirit. And um, the surging water stood firm like a wall. That's actually the word made. It's the word for dam, or dike, or embankment. So it's like, they, like the waters were dammed up on either side of them. All this imagery to describe what God is doing here. The enemy boasted, verse 9, the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, or spirit, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. That's, uh, that, that, there's, the earth swallowed them. Some people have said, wait a minute, it was the sea that swallowed them. Why does it say the earth swallowed them? Why does it say the Eretz is what did the swallowing? Uh, Two things. One is that is a general term for, for the underworld or the grave or, you know, just somebody dying in the ocean and, and, and drowning. That it's just as 
likely you can just say you can describe that as being swallowed by the earth just as much as if the actual earth swallowed them. However, it's also some foreshadowing because later there's going to be a rebellion against Moses. Some people are going to come rise up and they're going to say, wait a minute, what makes you so special? They're going to try to overthrow Moses and God is going to actually open up the earth and swallow them. And that moment will forever be remembered in Israel's history and preserved in the Psalms and elsewhere. So this song not only speaks of the events of the Exodus, but it also has some hints and some foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Israel's immediate future as well. Uh, and this song should have given those leaders pause before they started to inst institute a rebellion against Moses because they should have known, hey, this isn't just Moses that we're opposing. This is, this is the Lord, the warrior. You know, if, we, if we're on the wrong side of him, then there's no hope at all. But they didn't learn that lesson and they paid the price. Verse 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Unfailing love, that is one of the most important Hebrew words in the Old Testament. So if you're a circler, circle it, because that is the Hebrew word hesed. Uh, H, it's a weird H, it's a guttural H, so you have to make that fun Hebrew noise. But chesed, H-E-S-E-D. And that's the word that's translated as love, loving kindness, unfailing love, steadfast love, steadfast kindness. It, there's no English equivalent to it. So it's translated all over the place in all these different ways. But it means an unmerited, an undeserved, an unbreakable commitment to the person. The closest equivalent, one of my professors in seminary once said, the closest equivalent to this word that we find in the New Testament is the word grace. It's that word of, of God's coming and uniting with someone, wedding himself to someone, cleaving to someone, and saying, I am not going to let you go. Um, it's, it's a term, it's everywhere in scripture, chesed. Uh, if you get a Strong's Concordance, you can see it's all over the place, but it's super important the theology of the Old Testament and understanding God. It's his commitment and it's undeserved. That's the big thing. It's not like something that somebody earned. It's, a, it's an irrational devotion almost. Uh, in your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed in your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. This points forward now because in Exodus in, in just a few chapters they're going to come to his holy dwelling at Mount Sinai. Where God is literally going to be dwelling in the fire and the smoke, the cloud, the thunder, the lightning, all that. They're going to come to his holy dwelling. And while they're there, not only are they going to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, half of Exodus is going to be dedicated to teaching them how to build God's holy dwelling, his tabernacle. That's what all of those chapters at the end of Exodus are going to be devoted for. Here's how you're going to mimic or replicate God's holy dwelling in a movable, transportable form so that wherever you go, God will be there dwelling in your midst. You literally camp around the tabernacle in a big camp, and he'll be right there at the center. That's God's desire. That's how he wants to lead his people. That's what will be threatened by their rebellion with the golden calf. It's what will be threatened by their, their refusal to enter the promised land in numbers. Uh, and then ultimately, when they get settled in the land, God's going to take that holy dwelling and he's going to center it on another mountain, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. And that's where he'll build the temple, which will be his permanent holy dwelling 
until the one who one until the New Testament, the one comes who he himself is the temple, which is Jesus. So all of this imagery is pointing forward, even though it's being sung as they're on the shores of the Red Sea. Verse 14, the nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Those are the four enemies, the four peoples who stand between them and the promised land. Those four groups, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and then the Canaanites ultimately in the land. And what this is saying is all of them will hear and, and, and are hearing what you just did at this sea crossing. And that's going to be true when you get to the book of Joshua and they meet Rahab, the spies, and they talk to her at Jericho. She's going to say, everybody's heard and we're freaking out because of this people that God has brought. And, and that will be for her saving faith. Uh, verse 16, terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring, and that's what Israel did. They, passed, they had to pass through, they had to go around Philistia, through Moab, through Edom, and then into Canaan. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. That is directly pointing forward to uh, tabernacle and temple imagery. Sanctuary, your dwelling, those are temple and tabernacle terms. And then the last line, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, and Moses' sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and the rider is hurled into the sea. Uh, she didn't just sing that one verse, most likely she probably sang all of that. That's the title, the song of Moses, and, and it became, she taught them. She was first worship leader in Israel's history, taking musical instruments, teaching the people who they were, and more importantly, teaching them who God was, which is what all worship music should do. Worship should draw us to God, and it should tell us about God as well as telling us about ourselves. So you can filter all of your worship music, whether you're a traditional hymn singer or whether you're a modern worship rock band or whether you're a southern gospel, whatever your preferred form of worship music is, and there's no right one, it should all focus on who God is and who we are in relationship to. When it starts to get off into other stuff, that's when it starts to get away from what true worship music should be. And both traditional hymns and modern Christian rock are just as guilty of getting away from that. And, and there's a lot of bad worship music out there. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff, too, so sing the good stuff. <laughs> Verse 22, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. Oh, wait, let me back up real quick. Um, Verse 20, it said Miriam the prophetess. That's a pretty big deal. There's only at most seven women in the Old Testament or total that were called prophetesses or were spoken of as having the office or the authority of prophet. Um, so it's pretty significant. Right at the beginning, a prophet is one who knew something from God and spoke something to the people on behalf of God or spoke into a situation authoritatively. And that's a key. A prophet had authority. Prophets anointed kings. Prophets disobeyed kings. Prophets had authority. 
And right here, Miriam is called a prophetess. And she's not alone. There's others like Huldah and Deborah and uh, Noadiah, others in the Old Testament. But, but this is significant because it gets lost a lot in a lot of churches that have views of men and women and what their roles should be and this and that. It, it's hard to get into a higher position of authority than a prophet. So if in the Old Testament a woman can have the office of prophet, that should tell us that we need to be careful when saying what women can and can't do in churches based on a couple of passages from Paul or Timothy or something like that. We need to ask rather, what did women do in Scripture? Look at that and then let that condition how we read passages in the New Testament that seem to limit what women can do. And it's a big issue, and Christians are divided, and good faithful Christians disagree on it, and the roles of women, and all that. I understand. But I think the starting place should be what did God do through women? How did he use women? And then after working our way through, then we come to this passage later in the New Testament where Paul seems to be giving advice to women in particular places, limiting their roles, and it helps us to put those in balance with, with the fact that women can hold the highest offices in Israel, uh, including Deborah, who could actually lead the nation. So just a caveat, but like all biblical theology, you want to tuck it away. You want to remember this when you come to discussions about women in ministry and the roles and can they teach, can they have authority, et cetera, et cetera. Just remember these kinds of things. Okay. Uh, wrapping up verse 22. Then the Lord, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. That's a scary thought. If you've ever been without water, you can last for about three days before you die, uh, give or take. So they are at the end of whatever reserves they would have had most likely. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. There's a lot of water in that area. If you've been to the Dead Sea, uh, it, it's just sediment. It's all like sediment and minerals and everything. So there, there can be water that looks crystal clear, and you drink it, and it's ten times saltier than the ocean. If you've ever tasted Dead Sea water, and just my mom brought some back one time, and I just touched my finger, and it touched it on my tongue. And it was like somebody poured battery acid in my mouth. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable how salty it is. So that's something like what they experienced there, um, which is why the place is called Mara. Mara means bitterness. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Literally in Hebrew, the Lord showed him a tree. Uh, he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet or, or, or potable, drinkable. Then the Lord made a decree and a law for them. There he tested them, or that verb nasads, to test, to train, or to prove. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commandments and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So there's a lot going on here, but real quick, because we're running out of time, he tells them four things to do. These, these parallelism. Each verb is a, a, a thinking verb and a doing verb. So if you listen carefully, so take in and then do what is right. So covenant faithfulness, obedience, Torah faithfulness, which this is foreshadowing the full Torah, the full covenant. We're going to get it in a few chapters. True faithfulness consists in not just listening carefully, not just knowing the law, but doing what is right. You can't have faith without works. You can't. 
You cannot have faith without works. Both are required, both are a necessity, and God emphasizes it twice. Pay attention to the commands and keep the decrees. So in everything you do, if you do that, then he says, I won't bring any disasters on you like I did to the Egyptians. Now, what's this whole bitter water throwing a tree in it? A lot of medieval interpreters have read into it all kinds of symbolism and typology. It's, it's a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ, you know, the, the wood that he was crucified on. This is throwing the wood into the bitter waters, turns it sweet, just like his sacrifice, which was bitter, turned our sin into salvation. Maybe, sure, who knows? I mean, there, you could read all kinds of stuff into it. I, I was an art school grad, and I, we were graded on how well we could pretty much talk about stuff in images that may or may not actually be there. Um, so it's possible to read all that into it. But the key in this is what was the first miracle, what was the first plague that God did in Egypt? He turned the drinkable water undrinkable by turning the Nile into blood. The first plague he did was to ruin Egypt's water supply. And so now the first thing that he's undoing or teaching people by, by, by doing the opposite of is turning the most undrinkable water into the most drinkable water. And it's this supernatural. Why do you use the tree? I don't know. Are there scientific properties that if you put certain vegetable matter in certain minerals, it absorbs and turn? Maybe, but not for 50, 100,000 people. It, it's beyond the natural, even if it uses something from the natural. The point of it, the teaching point of this is that God's saying, I'm not just a God who rains down plagues on people I don't like. Remember, that's the only side they've seen of him for the entire book of Exodus. They've only seen his judgment. Now, at the beginning of their journey, just after the ultimate act of his judgment, they're going to see his healing. Right when their faith is challenged and they cry out, they grumble against Moses. God doesn't rebuke them because grumbling without having water for three days in the desert is understandable. So instead of rebuking, God says, Moses, here, take care of it. Do this. Moses does it. The people have water to drink, and then God says, now. That is just a hint of the type of God I am. If you obey, God's setting them up for what's going to happen in Exodus 19. If you obey me, I will provide for all your needs. I will provide water in the desert. I will provide food in the wilderness. I will provide defeat of your enemies. I will provide all these things because that's what someone who has chesed with another person, that's what someone who has unfailing commitment does. They take care of the other person who can't take care of themselves. So the whole covenant that Israel is going to receive, the whole Torah that they're going to receive at Mount Sinai, God's going to say, if you do this, if you keep your end of the bargain, then I'll take care of everything. That's the type of radical salvation that God extended to Israel. <clears throat> and we know and we're going to see how time and time again they're going to turn their noses at God. They're going to they're not believe him. They're going to try to do it on their own. And the results are going to always be disastrous. But right after this, right after he turns this bitter water sweet, gives them something to drink. Then verse 27, then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. 12 and 70 are both numbers in the Bible that constitute or connote the idea of fullness or completeness or wholeness or provision. 12 and 70 is basically saying all the water they needed, all the shade that they needed. He provides for them beyond what they can imagine uh, and they camp there near the water. So he ends it by doing this seemingly insignificant thing but it has big implications for the type of God he is. And that's what the next couple of chapters are going to 
continue to ingrain into the people until they get to Mount Sinai. Then they'll be given a choice. Do you take this offer or are you going to reject this offer? And we'll see that in the coming weeks. Uh, have fun with Chris next week. And then in two weeks, I'll be back and we'll pick it up in Exodus 16. Have a great week.